Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, Talk About Infertility. Today we're going to be talking about an introduction to female fertility. Understanding fertility is a, uh, a very good introduction to understanding infertility. Our expert today is Dr. Julie Lamb. She is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at Pacific Northwest Fertility in Seattle, and she serves as a clinical faculty at the University of Washington. She directs the REI training of OBGYN resident physicians and is the director of the Center for Fertility Preservation at Pacific Northwest Fertility. Welcome, Dr. Lamb. Thank you for joining us today to talk about a topic that is of great importance to, to all of us, female fertility. Let's just jump in there. Let's start with one of the most basic things that we really must understand, and that is the menstrual cycle. So let's start with how does the menstrual cycle work in a healthy woman who is not at this point experiencing any infertility issues? Um, well, thanks for having me, Dawn. And this certainly understanding the menstrual cycle is something that, you know, a lot of us grow up not really understanding. I see physicians that don't really understand the menstrual cycle. So something that's kind of complicated. It is very um, so complicated. The basic, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the basic menstrual cycle is um, occurs like once a month. So I often hear patients say, oh, well, my cycle is not very regular. But actually, you know, if it comes between 25 and 35 days and it happen, and you don't miss months, then that would be considered a, a regular menstrual cycle. Um, and the menstrual cycle is broken into two parts. The first part is growing the follicle, which houses the little egg. And the second part is after the release of the egg, uh, sustaining the lining until a pregnancy could take place, until the ovary could sustain the pregnancy in case the egg is fertilized and implants in the uterus. And if that doesn't happen, then the period comes um, and the lining sheds. So a lot of my patients say, oh, well, I know I'm releasing the egg or, you know, I I don't think I'm releasing my egg, but if you're having a regular menstrual cycle, then we know um, that most likely an egg is being released every month. So what, what part of our body tells us, uh, tells our ovaries to start maturing an egg? How does that happen? Yeah, so it's actually the brain, a part of the brain called the pituitary that, that makes a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone that recruits a follicle on the ovary to grow and matures the little egg inside. And, and um, then that same part of the brain causes ovulation to release the egg into the fallopian tube where it could be fertilized. So what tells our body to shed the uterine lining if, a, if an embryo does not implant? So if the embryo doesn't implant, then the progesterone that the ovary is making after the egg is released uh, withdraws and decreases, and that decrease is what causes that lining to shed. So if there's a pregnancy there, then those hormones are supported, and that pregnancy is, uh, the progesterone is produced for longer, and then we don't see the lining shed. And that's how a patient would know to check a pregnancy test, by not giving that period. All right. So let's let's then back up and then also talk about the basics of conception. You mentioned that our pituitary has has released FSH and it has told our ovaries to mature an egg. Uh, usually, this is one egg that that is matured and then released, and that egg then goes to the is is. It's sucked the right word. It's kind of sucked into the fallopian tube. It is, uh, what yeah, is the picked up, picked, picked up. up. 
And so it is yeah, picked up by the fallopian tube. All right. So now take us from there about how a conception would happen. So we, um, you know, we want sperm waiting for the egg. So a woman needs to time intercourse with a partner or get sperm there waiting for that egg to release. So the sperm is already up in the fallopian tube to meet that egg. And if the uh, fertilization occurs, then the egg continues to travel down into the uterus and will hopefully implant in the lining of the uterus. And as it implants, it starts making a hormone called HCG or the hormone of pregnancy. It's that one we test in the blood two weeks later. And that is what supports the corpus luteum, which is the the little follicle where the egg released from uh, to continue to make progesterone. So making that progesterone sustains the pregnancy and keeps that menstrual cycle from occurring in the setting of a pregnancy. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It is amazing. Uh, It's absolutely human conception is absolutely, I mean, it's a miracle any of us, you know, that, that anybody gets pregnant. <laughs> just, if you think about all the possibilities right. that, that things can, that things that could go wrong. Certainly. All right. So that's the basics of fertility in a, a healthy woman. So let's talk about infertility. First of all, how is infertility defined? So infertility is a medical condition, and it's a unique medical condition because it actually depends on two people, not a single individual. And it's defined as the inability of a couple to conceive after 12 months of regular intercourse without the use of contraception in a woman that's less than 35. And it's defined by six months of regular intercourse without the use of contraception in a woman that's greater than 35 or 35 years or older. And let me ask a question. Is that timed intercourse. So if somebody is, uh, you had mentioned before and, and uh, that it's important to time sexual intercourse, you want the, the sperm to be present when the egg so that it arrives in the, uh, in the fallopian tubes. So we call that timed intercourse. Right. So is it, is the 12 month of trying with timed intercourse or if you're timing your intercourse and, and you've gone five months, and you're 30, uh, should you see a doctor because the 12 months is actually just intercourse any, any time of the month right. or, uh, you're feeling in the mood? Yes, yeah, so certainly um, it requires much more regular intercourse. If you're uh, not timing intercourse or if you're just having sex once a month, um, then the fertility rates will be lower. You know, if somebody's having difficulties having intercourse, and we see, certainly want to see them sooner than a year, or if someone's not having regular menstrual cycles, that's more concerning and also a reason to see a fertility specialist. But really, infertility is defined as either regular intercourse or timing intercourse for, gotcha. for that okay. year. But if a woman is not ovulating, uh, is not having regular periods, or even if she's having periods, but they're highly irregular. At that point, it makes sense to go see a specialist sooner. Right. Okay. Obviously. Right. I think, Good. yeah, patients should never hesitate to reach out and talk to a specialist if they're worried. No. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Or if they think they have reason to be worried. Yeah. So right. how common is infertility as, as you just defined it? So we consider it pretty common, right? So one in 10 or even some studies say one in eight couples will experience difficulty conceiving. Certainly it depends on the age at which you start trying to conceive. So I think one of the common misconceptions is that infertility is more common, but really we're just 
waiting as a population, we're waiting longer to conceive. It used, a generation ago, we had babies in our 20s, but now we're, mm-hmm. usually, you know, often women wait till their mid to late 30s. And certainly mm-hmm. that the prevalence of, or the incidence of difficulty conceiving increases with age. Mm-hmm. All right. We mentioned what conditions would warrant an immediate infertility workup without waiting the recommended amount of time. We mentioned irregular periods uh, or absence of periods. So what are some other conditions that would warrant not waiting the recommended 12 months if you're under 35 and uh, 35 and older six months? So lots of different things. I encourage women to reach out to a fertility specialist for. So if you have um, severe endometriosis, which is when the lining of the uterus grows outside the uterus. Um, it's often diagnosed by surgery, but sometimes an early sign of it is just really painful periods. So we encourage those patients to reach out sooner. Um, if you've had surgery on an ovary or tubes or on your female anatomy that could have damaged part of it, we want you to consider reaching out sooner. If you know your partner has low sperm, that would be a reason to reach out sooner. Or if you have any um, abnormalities, known abnormalities with the uterus or tubes or ovaries, certainly don't hesitate to reach out sooner. Yeah. A lot of times people don't know, but right. uh, but if they, yeah, but if they do, uh, mm-hmm. excellent. Yeah. Or just like known fibroids or yeah, something that could potentially cause fertility, getting checked out and being reassured that everything's healthy and normal can be really helpful to women, especially. Okay. So we have defined uh, infertility, but uh, another problem that that falls in this same category would be recurrent pregnancy loss, not the inability. Often these women are able to become pregnant, but are not able to stay pregnant. So at what point is miscarriage, which we know is very common, at what point does it reach the the, the level of concern that one should seek uh, treatment? Um, I, again, anytime that you're worried, I think it's okay to reach out. Miscarriage is pretty common, and it also increases with age. So you're still more likely to have a healthy pregnancy than any other option, you know, any other other outcome. Um, but reoccurrent miscarriage is defined as like just the inability to carry a pregnancy to term. And we consider it and start testing for it after two to three miscarriages. Mm-hmm. So if you were concerned, but yeah. uh, but but medically the 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 recommendation is two or more right. uh, miscarriages. Right, right, and mm-hmm. the and the recommendation really is three or more miscarriages. But after two, you know, patients are so heartbroken that we start we start with mm-hmm. the investigation then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what type of specialist do you recommend uh, a woman go to who has had two or three miscarriages? Right. So this is also with a reproductive endocrinologist or a fertility specialist. This, um, you know, an inability to carry a pregnancy is part of that infertility definition and also would see a fertility specialist. Okay. Right. And a, and a fertility specialist is a reproductive endocrinologist. Yes. And what type of training does a reproductive endocrinologist have that uh, is distinct from the training that an OBGYN has? Yes, so we start out very similarly. We all do four years of medical school and then four years of obstetrical and gynecological surgery as residents. And then the uh, reproductive endocrinologist has a three-year subspecialty fellowship training um, in fertility. Okay. 
what percentage of infertility is caused by the female partner and then by the male partner or a combination of the two? Yes. So fertility problems um, are about a third of the time male factors. So related to low sperm for a variety of different reasons. And about a third of the time they're female, like either ovulation dysfunction or problems with the tubes or endometriosis or difficulty having intercourse. Um, are female related. And then the final third of the time, it, we call it unexplained, and it can be related to like multiple factors and sometimes factors that we don't have a diagnosis for or don't have a way to test. Yeah, that's so frustrating mm -hmm. because I think not having a cause is really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It plays on your mind. Yeah, it's often that everything looks healthy and normal and we're still something, probably something that we don't know how to test yet that can happen in the mm -hmm. tubes or, you know, microscopically that we can't see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's hard for patients to hear that everything looks healthy and normal. Then they, you know, they're like, why isn't it working? It's so frustrating. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It is hard. Uh, sometimes it's the hardest because uh, you don't have a cause. You don't have, a, mm -hmm. you, you have nothing to focus on. Yeah. And it's very hard for, for the patients. All right. What are some of the common reasons that women do not ovulate? Because a failure to mm -hmm. ovulate is obviously a common cause of infertility. Yeah. So what are some of the medical conditions that would cause a woman to not ovulate? So there's a variety of conditions that can cause a woman to miss her periods or to not ovulate. That's the first sign that someone's not ovulating if they're missing that menstrual cycle every month. Um, one of the most common ones that I often see is polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is abbreviated PCOS and often presents when a woman's trying to conceive and, and comes off the birth control pill and just doesn't have normal periods or regular cycles. And so that's probably the most common, but other endocrine abnormalities can also cause difficulty ovulating, such as thyroid abnormalities, prolactin abnormalities, all of this gets tested in that initial infertility workup. And then another common is um, body weight. So a high body weight or a very low body weight can also affect ovulation. And why is that? Why does body weight impact ovulation? Yeah, so it just affects the hormone axis. So at a very low body weight, you just don't have the hormones that the brain isn't making, the hormones to recruit the follicle and release the egg. And that at really high body weights, that extra fat tissue makes estrogen and that interferes with the access sometimes to release the egg. So that hormone access is affected. So on both extremes, uh, right. low body weight, the, the pituitary is not is not telling the uh, ovary to produce the egg or to, to mature the egg. And, uh, and then uh, excess body weight, uh, it would be the estrogen, which would be interfering with the reception of the, of the hormone for maturing the egg. You're right. Okay. All right. You mentioned uh, cause for an initial workup. Uh, so let's talk about what is a part of the initial workup for a woman who is, is presenting as having infertile. She has not has, uh, if she, depending on her age, 12 months or six months, uh, she has not conceived. So what are some of the aspects, what are some of the components of this initial workup uh, that a woman should be receiving? Yeah. So when you meet with your fertility specialist, you kind of walk through the different um, systems and talk about the testing. And, you know, one of the first things and the easiest things to test is the sperm. Um, so checking the seminal fluid, or we call it a seminal fluid analysis, checking that 
sperm count is one of the first steps. For, mm -hmm. And it's really the only step that the male partner contributes to. Uh, the other piece of it is blood tests for the female, kind of those tests we talked about that are important on ovulation, the thyroid and the prolactin, and also looking at the ovarian reserve or what we call the egg supply, uh, which is an anti-malarian hormone and the follicle-stimulating hormone and estradiol levels. And those last two are done at cycle-specific times, so at the beginning of the menstrual cycle, where they can um, be best evaluated. Are those blood tests? Yeah, all those, those you just mentioned? all those are blood tests, um, and they can all be okay. done with one poke. If you you know one stick, if you do it at the beginning of the menstrual cycle. Oftentimes, when we're doing a fertility evaluation, we check other blood tests as well, just kind of preparing for pregnancy. You know, such as blood type and titers to different you know chicken pox and rubella, making sure you're immune and just just your general health status. So there cannot be other blood tests added to that. And then really the, the last two components of that infertility evaluation are a pelvic ultrasound. So looking at the uterus, tubes, and ovaries um, with an ultrasound, it's usually done transvaginally and it helps us understand if there's anything in the way of a pregnancy, like a fibroid or a polyp, or if um, endometriosis might be a more likely diagnosis, if we see something like an endometrioma or a cyst on the ovary that can be a sign of um, other diseases or other things that can contribute to infertility. And then the final thing that we're looking at when we do that transvaginal ultrasound is the ovarian reserve um, with an antral follicle count. We can see those resting follicles and get a little window into a woman's fertility um, and a woman's ovarian reserve by counting those at a certain stage of the cycle. So what would be considered normal? When you're counting, what's considered normal? Yeah, we consider anything that's above 10 to 12 range combined between the two ovaries, we would consider that normal. doesn't tell us if a woman can get pregnant or not, but it does give us a little picture into that, those blood tests and what, you know, if I see a normal angel follicle count, then those blood tests are more likely to be also normal. Okay. The final thing for a fertility workup is that hysteroscopingogram, which is the picture of the tubes and knowing that those tubes are open and evaluating that uterine cavity is just that final piece of the fertility evaluation. And how is that test run? Um, that test is a, a fluoroscopic, like a, a picture of the uterus. We put a little tiny bit of dye inside the uterus and take an x-ray picture. It can be a little bit crampy anytime you put anything in the uterus and then with high pressure, push it out the tube. It doesn't feel very good. So we encourage women to take ibuprofen before that test. But it gives us a better indication about um, a healthy uterine cavity where the embryo would implant and, and tells us that the, if the tubes are open. And that's an important component in um, mm -hmm. achieving pregnancy. So all, and is all that usually done at uh, the first or second, one of the first part of the initial workup? Yes. Yeah. All of that's part of that initial workup. Okay. I'm assuming medical, medical history is, is probably one of the first things that's done as well. What things are you asking about in a medical history that would be relevant to uh, 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 helping a diagnose someone as infertile? Yeah, that's a great question, Don. So that's actually where we start. Like that's one of the most important parts is uh, before we even talk about all this testing, we go through the the medical history of both the patient and her partner. Um, and we talk to them about their menstrual cycles. I want to know if they miss it, ever miss a month. I want to know 
Um, if her periods are, her, are painful, I want to know if she has pain with intercourse. I want to know if there's any medical history, like thyroid disease or um, things like that, that, that could impact fertility. I ask um, quite a bit about male factor fertility. Like, did he have any surgeries on his testicle or has he had a hernia repair or something that could have um, caused the sperm count to be low? Um, and then we even ask about family history. So I want to know the age that the, the woman's mother last conceived and um, the age of menopause. I'm much more concerned if, if her mother went through menopause early in her 30s or for early 40s. Um, so it's a lot of information from the history, the medical history can be really important in a fertility evaluation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about uh, sexually transmitted diseases? Yeah, that's a great example. You want to know if there's any history of chlamydia or gonorrhea, especially because that can affect the tubal factor fertility, can cause the tube to be less functional. Mm -hmm. Okay. So all of that would be uh, solicited from uh, just talking with the patient uh, and hopefully they have this information or know this information. Yeah. Most people know that kind of information. Yeah. All right. So now we, let's talk about the workup for recurrent pregnancy loss. So a woman has had two or three miscarriages. First of all, is it important that the miscarriages be sequential or if they are interrupted by either a, a long period where they have not been trying or a pregnancy? To qualify as recurrent pregnancy loss, do they need to happen um, sequentially? Um, it actually just doesn't matter anytime, and, you know, we even include any kind of clinical pregnancy, wherever it happens, counts. So even just a pregnancy test that's positive before we see an intrauterine pregnancy by ultrasound, we would include that as a biochemical and count that as a pregnancy when we're looking at recurrent pregnancy loss. So it could be that you had one of those, and then you had a healthy pregnancy to term and had a baby, and then you had a a second miscarriage after the delivery. We would count that as a um, two okay. miscarriages. Doesn't have to be all, all three in a row. Can be separate. Okay. Okay. So a person, uh, a patient comes to you uh, with uh, having had two or three miscarriages, uh, pregnancy losses. What is a part of that workup? So it actually is pretty similar to the fertility workup. We start with that same history and physical examination and ultrasound. And uh, an important part of the history that I'm eliciting is like any history of autoimmune diseases or any history of blood clots, or did your mom or anyone in your family have reoccurrent pregnancy loss? Um, I'm screening for things, other things that can cause miscarriage. Like has anyone ever, you know, have you ever had any um, workup or any ultrasounds or uh, that have shown a uterine anomaly or something with your uterus that can cause an abnormality. And so that history, again, just like in the infertility workup, is also important with recurrent pregnancy loss. And some of the testing we also do is similar. So those hormone evaluations are also really important. Even a couple more that we do. And then a uterine cavity evaluation. So often starting with that same hysterosalpingogram or a test that's called the Sailing sonogram that helps a special ultrasound that gives us a really good look at the inside of the uterus to make sure there's nothing inside the uterus that could be causing a miscarriage. Okay. Let me pause for a moment and remind you that this show, as well as all the resources brought to you by Creating a Family, 
could not and would not happen without the generous support of organizations who believe in our mission of providing you unbiased, medically accurate information. One such partner is Walgreens and Alliance RX Walgreens Prime. They provide specialized fertility pharmacy services through an experienced care team available 24-7, devoted to helping patients achieve successful outcomes. They understand the importance of timing and the need for personalized treatment and are committed to compassionate care and support throughout a patient's journey to have a family. Another partner is Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank. They are dedicated to providing a wide selection of high quality, extensively screened frozen donor sperm and egg from all races, ethnicity, and phenotypes for both home insemination as well as fertility treatment. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States, helping to provide the gift of a family. All right, let's talk now about treatment options for infertility. I think people immediately assume uh, when they hear uh, fertility, infertility treatment, they immediately go to thinking that IVF is the, is the only option. So let's back up a bit here. Uh, let's understand some of the, uh, the basics. So when somebody first is going to be treated, uh, for infertility. I know so, obviously it's going to depend on the cause, but uh, what are the options that you as a reproductive endocrinologist look at? So once the cause of infertility is identified, therapy is like initially aimed at correcting the reversible causes and then overcoming the irreversible causes so we can implement kind of a strategy to treat their fertility. So we start with simple things like lifestyle modification to improve fertility. You know, if they're smoking, we have them stop. Um, we have them look at their alcohol consumption, look at their weight. We make sure they're appropriately timing intercourse uh, and make sure they're ovulating at the right time and help them predict when they're ovulating, sometimes with the use of ultrasound or an ovulation predictor kit. So some of those initial strategies can be really helpful for couples. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then there's other therapeutic interventions. Um, and the, those main two with those are the intrauterine insemination and then the IVF, like you mentioned. All right. Uh, you have said a couple of things. One, you can help if a woman is not ovulating. One of the things you try to do is help her ovulate. Uh, right. What are the approaches for helping someone ovulate? Yeah, so we call that ovulation induction, and we not only use lifestyle modification, so we make sure that there's not a hormone that's causing it or obesity that's causing it, um, and then we help them ovulate with medication, which is usually an oral ovulation induction agent, such as Clomid or Letrozole, Femara. Okay, and they can, uh, how effective are either uh, letrozole or uh, clomiphene citrate for inducing ovulation or helping a woman who is not ovulating to ovulate? Um, that's a great question. I guess it would uh, depend on the ideology of the anovulation. So the reason why the woman's not ovulating, but usually it's pretty effective. I think probably nine times out of 10, um, it will help a woman uh, release an egg on a more regular basis. All right. So what are the pregnancy rates then for uh, treatment through oral medications, such as either letrozole or clomiphene citrate? Yeah, so it de certainly depends on the age of the patient. So when a patient's 
not releasing an egg and you help them release their egg and they're in their 20s, then the pregnancy rates can be as high as 15 to 20% per month. But by the time a patient's 40, it's um, as low as 5% per month. So there's a lot of variability. It's mainly based on age and the cause of the fertility issue. As is, as is natural conception yeah. as well. Right, really, right. It? Right. It really brings it up to that level of natural conception, what it should be, because you're not really fixing any, well, you're fixing the problem of not ovulating and releasing the egg, but it doesn't really improve on levels of natural conception. Okay. And now you also mentioned IUIs, mm-hmm. interuterine insemination. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that and, and what does that mean? What is involved and how successful is it? So that is the process of washing the sperm from a, a partner or uh, from a sperm donor and putting it inside the uterus. So threading it through the cervix with the use of a speculum and placing it near the top of the uterine cavity. It kind of feels to a patient kind of like a pap smear is how I describe it. But it's it's specifically helpful in cases where there's low sperm counts or a couple is unable to have intercourse or in a woman who has either a female partner or is single and just needs sperm put closer to her, put close to the egg. And the success rates, Don, are very similar to um, natural fertility, right? So it depends on the age of the woman and what other kind of fertility factors are impacting things. But the success rate really should be looked at at, um, as like a group of cycles. So per cycle, it might not be as high as any of us want it to be. But, you know, someone who's in her early 30s, you know, more than half of patients would be pregnant over a, you know, three to four cycle period of time. So that brings us to a question that, uh, that we probably should have asked at the very beginning, which is what is the natural fertility rate for a couple? with no fertility issues. Right. So I think that, you know, when you're young, you think every month you have such a good chance of conceiving, but I think it's a common misconception how, how difficult, how many things have to happen every month to conceive. So even when you're in your Mm twenties, the chance of pregnancy every month is only about 15 to 20%. And that's with time. That's with timed intervals, correct? Right. So not every egg causes a baby, even when you're young and healthy. And those eggs are less efficient as we age. So the quality and the quantity decrease with age. And by 40, you know, one in 20 eggs makes a baby. So it changes a lot in between 35 and 40. The decrease is certainly increasing at that point. The decrease in in infertility. Right. Or decreasing of fertility, increasing of infertility. All right, so we've talked about IUI. Is that the only form of artificial insemination is an IUI? Or are there other forms that can be used as well? Um, that's kind of it. Are you thinking about something specific? I guess it can either be partner sperm yeah. or donor sperm. It doesn't have to be partner sperm. I was thinking uh, intracervical versus uh, uh, IUI. Oh, right. Some of my patients do inner cervical or do that at home. We find it to be just more successful putting it all the way inside the uterus. But yeah, some people will not process the sperm and put it in the vagina or in the cervix. Mm -hmm. Either at home or in a doctor's office. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about natural conception rates, and then we've talked about using oral medications uh, and then IUIs and, and how successful those are. So let's talk about IVF now, in vitro fertilization. 
So what is that process and, and who do you recommend it for? So it's really a case by case basis, but um, patients, the IVF process is the process of growing and maturing the follicles inside of a woman's body um, in order to take out more than one egg. So not because not every egg causes a pregnancy, if we're going to grow and mature the eggs, we want more than one to give a patient the best chance of success. So the entire process kind of evolves around that goal of maturing eggs inside the woman's body. And we do that using that same hormone that we check when we're looking for ovarian reserve testing. So that follicle stimulating hormone is used and it's a hormone that's like insulin. It can't be injected or it can't be swallowed. We have to inject it. So it's a series of injections uh-huh. on an average of kind of 10 to 12 days. And uh, during that time, we watch the growth of the ovaries and the eggs. And then we go in and with a tiny little needle, like we would use to draw blood, but it goes through the top of the vagina and, and we aspirate the follicles and with it comes the egg. So this treatment um, of fertilizing these eggs outside of the body is really helpful for patients that either have severe male factors, so very low sperm counts, because it allows us to fertilize each egg individually with a single sperm. So it doesn't rely on the millions of sperm that would be important for natural conception. It also allows us to bypass tubal factor fertility. So it's taking the egg outside the body and bypassing the tube. And it's also helpful for either unexplained or age-related fertility because it helps us find the best eggs because we can get a number of eggs in a given month. So there's, those are the main groups of patients that this is helpful for. And how can you find, okay, so you, you've, you have, have collected a, a number of eggs. How can you find, uh, determine which is the best egg? So the embryologist will look at the eggs under the microscope and they'll fertilize the eggs. And then we watch them grow to, um, to day five. And the ones that survive and make uh, day five, day six embryos have a, the best chance of creating a baby. So we can actually do more testing now, especially with increasing age. We can take some of those cells that would become the placenta and we can test them for genetics. We can look at the chromosomal complement, make sure it's normal. And that's the thing that's affected the most by age. So by the, you know, when we're 35, about half of our eggs are abnormal already. And by 40, it approaches 80%. So testing those beautiful, even those beautiful embryos under the microscope really helps us select the one that's most likely to cause a pregnancy. All right. So the, uh, the process for IVF, um, walk us through the medications that you would use throughout the IVF process. Yeah. So the the medications we use, um, there's a bunch of different ones, and it can be overwhelming for a new nurse or even and certainly overwhelming for patients. But in general, it's a series of injections that helps the eggs to grow and then prevents them from being released early. And then there's a final, there's a final medication that, that we call it the trigger medication, and it causes that final stage of maturity where it releases from the wall of the egg and would eventually release from the follicle. And before that happens, we go in and get the egg. Um, so that medication is called a trigger medication. There's different types and different protocols that can be a challenge for patients and for team members. And how do you decide which protocol to use? Um, we used um, a number, it's just very individualized per patient, but um, we use a number of different protocols. 
And the main difference is a kind of a high responder or a low responder. If we expect a patient to grow a lot of eggs, we're going to use a little bit different protocol than somebody we don't expect to grow very many eggs. And those protocol choices are sometimes made by those egg supply tests, um, but also the age of the patient is also a big factor. Mm -hmm. Because you would expect older patients to not be uh, producing as many eggs. Right, I would right, right. Right. Or just we want to be more aggressive because we know it takes more eggs to find one that will make a baby in an older patient. And by stimulating the ovaries, uh, how do you know that you're uh, not going to, uh, does more, are more eggs the better, Miss? what I'm yeah. trying to ask? Does it, is there a limit as to how many you want to stimulate? If, if you're not sure how many you're going to get, then is more is more always yeah, better? Yeah, more isn't always better. And especially in my younger patients, they don't need as many to cause a pregnancy. So certainly we want each patient to have a few more than she needs because if the process doesn't work, it's lovely to have something left over so that she doesn't have to grow or start the whole IVF process again if the cycle's not successful. It's nice to have something saved for, for either a second baby or a second attempt um, from a single IVF cycle. But a younger patient just needs fewer eggs in general to cause a pregnancy than a patient of a more advanced age. Okay, and what is the success rate for IVF? So it depends, Don, on a lot of factors, and mainly age, but it also depends on a patient's ovarian reserve and the efficiency of the process for them. So if we're looking at the kind of the equalizer is having a genetically normal or embryo, um, and that success rate, even though it's clinic dependent, you know, averages between 60 and 70%. But there's plenty of patients that go through the whole process, especially at advanced age, and just can't get an embryo that's um, high quality and genetically normal. So the cycle mm -hmm. statistics vary so much, and they can be one of the most confusing pieces for team members and for patients. And they are so age dependent. Right. And they're so age dependent. Mm -hmm. Which is hard for patients to hear as well. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to talking about treatment options for recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, what options do we have for women who are struggling to stay pregnant? So pregnancy loss is sometimes, sometimes we consider it a good problem to have because you have more choices about how to get pregnant. So a patient that's easily becoming pregnant can try again and we can support the pregnancy. Um, there's some, you know, some progesterone support or we'll add aspirin after we do all this testing. We certainly start with all this, the treatments um, for any underlying condition that can cause a reoccurring pregnancy loss. So if there's a septum or a uterine anomaly or something in the uterus that's in the way of a pregnancy, we address that first. Or a hormonal problem. We fix that first. If there's a thyroid disease, we address that. All those things are really crucial uh, for reoccurring pregnancy loss. But if a patient's going to go ahead and try on their own, that's when we'll consider adding the progesterone and the aspirin, um, a baby aspirin. And how is a baby aspirin helpful in the treatment of recurrent pregnancy loss? So there's a lot that we don't know, and we probably have to treat quite a few patients with a baby aspirin. Um, to help one patient, but there's some, some data that says that there's some potential clotting factors that can, can cause uh, reoccurrent pregnancy loss. So uh, a baby aspirin treats 
treats um, some of the ones that we know about, but it also treats some of the ones that we might not know about or there isn't a diagnostic test for yet. Um, so because it's very inexpensive and it doesn't do any harm, that's often added to a protocol for a patient that has a recurrent pregnancy loss history. Okay, what about progesterone? Uh, how is that effective in uh, preventing pregnancy loss? So progesterone just makes sure we're basically um, not low. As we age, progesterone can decrease. And in some patient populations, they could have a low progesterone. So sometimes when a patient's miscarrying, we'll add um, progesterone with that positive pregnancy test to support the pregnancy until the pregnancy can take over and, and the placenta can make the progesterone. Kind of supports that ovarian function. And, and how is the uh, progesterone administered? Um, it varies by provider. Um, we, we usually give it vaginally. We have a patient um, has fewer systemic effects or side effects if you insert the tablet vaginally, but it can also be given intramuscularly or taken orally. Okay. So in any number of, of ways, it can be used mm -hmm. to support a pregnancy. What are the success rates? What, what can we tell women as far as their odds of if they've had two or three pregnancy losses? What are the odds of them being able to carry a pregnancy to term? So I, especially after all the testing's been done and anything's been corrected, um, I find it really helpful to encourage patients that they're still more likely to have a healthy pregnancy than any other outcome. So these patients get so discouraged, um, but every, every time they get a positive pregnancy test, that, that pregnancy is still more likely to become a baby, a healthy baby um, than any other outcome. Certainly it's still possible to miscarry, um, but encouraging them and telling them that the, the chances of a successful pregnancy is still quite high. Mm -hmm. Is it age dependent as well? Yes, certainly age dependent. Success rate. Right, right. Certainly age dependent. And in fact, sometimes we do, you know, we didn't talk about this when we were talking about IVF, but especially with advancing age, miscarriages are more common. So one of the treatments or one of the uses of IVF is this process of growing eggs and then testing embryos and finding that genetically healthy embryo to implant will decrease the miscarriage rate and decrease reoccurrent loss in these patients of advanced age. Because the primary reason that they're miscarrying is because there's a chromosomal abnormality. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what is the treatment uh, of uh, protocol or what can you tell patients who are losing pregnancies uh, in the second trimester? Is it different? from what uh, pregnancy loss in the first trimester. Yes, it is different. And the workup is a little bit different. It's also much less common, luckily, because that's very hard diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, so their workup is similar, mm -hmm. but a little bit more involved. And oftentimes we have those patients see a maternal fetal medicine specialist in addition to that fertility specialist. And we work together to try to not let that happen again. What are the primary causes of, of second trimester pregnancy loss? So one of the common, still common causes is that chromosomal abnormality, um, but also structural abnormalities, problems with the uterus. So a septum or a big fibroid in the uterus can cause later losses, um, as well as incompetent cervix. So uh, cervical shortening or preterm um, delivery, kind of things that can cause preterm delivery, surgery on your cervix. Um, and so there's some things that 
they do in the second trimester with a maternal fetal medicine specialist to try to prevent that and monitoring that cervical length and um, administering higher doses of progesterone in that second trimester. Other common, other common causes, um, I think there's a lot of unexplained causes. Um, and then we also look for some of the clotting disorders, such as antithrombo, like some of those clotting disorders that we kind of talked about earlier. We look for those as well. Also in the, in the yeah. um, and that's, these are the, these are more common in the second trimester losses. Yes, correct. Okay. We've talked about infertil the infertility workup for cisgendered women, but let's also talk about the infertility workup and how it might differ for any of the members of the LGBTQ plus community. Just briefly, how would the, how would your initial approach differ depending on, on if, if the patient is either, uh, well, uh, lesbian or bisexual right. or transgender or whatever, however they're, however they're presenting. Right. So it's su such a different conversation because often these patients aren't infertile. They just don't have sperm in their family. So it's um, a little bit mm -hmm. less about infertility. Um, they're not as anxious about being there, I find. Um, they've, you know, been planning on seeing a fertility specialist to achieve pregnancy because they don't have sperm in their family sometimes. So, and the workup's a little bit different. Um, if somebody's young and just trying to achieve pregnancy for the first time and doesn't have the diagnosis of infertility because they haven't been able to try for for 12 months because they don't have sperm in their family, then they don't meet that criteria for infertility. Um, and so it's, it's mm -hmm. a discussion with the patient. Certainly when you're going to pay to put sperm there and go through the process of seeing a doctor to get pregnant, we don't want to miss anything. So we offer those same tests, those same workups, but sometimes we'll try some simple inseminations before we do some of the more complicated testing um, because we don't assume that there's necessarily going to be a problem in achieving pregnancy. And we often see, you know, really mm -hmm. high success rates. But that being said, if the mm -hmm. patients of advanced age, the, that fertility window is smaller, um, especially if they're over 35, then we still often start with that same, the same test we talked about, the vaginal ultrasound, the hormone testing, the tube tests, and making sure everything's healthy and normal before we start. Just because mm -hmm. it can be so disappointing to try, um, try with a doctor for a while and then find out you have a problem. So it's just kind of an, a very robust conversation with patients and some feel very strongly one way or the other and it's a real personal decision, what mm -hmm. testing to do initially and what to wait till later. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing just in our community that, uh, you know, even five, 10 years ago, um, that our lesbian couples were, our, our patients were waiting until they were older, but now they're, they seem to be, at least we're seeing that patients are coming in or lesbians are coming in at a younger age. So they're having less fertility issues. Yeah. It's really great when somebody can get pregnant really quickly and easily. It makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes them yeah. happy too. Um, uh, let's talk a, a bit about uh, just your transgender patients. Uh, again, they may or may not have fertility issues. So how is the initial uh, workup? How might it differ from your transgender patients? So we see um, a variety of transgender patients at all, 
all points in time with the transition. Um, patients will come and freeze sperm before they transition to female and or they'll come and freeze eggs before they transition to male. So there's a lot of variety of like fertility preservation options that we that we offer these patients um, as they consider transitioning. And then certainly even after the transition, we help them achieve pregnancy through a, a variety of treatment options. Uh, related to either sperm donor or egg donor or have a partner who carries or a friend who carries or <laughs> friends who donate sperm. There's lots yeah. of ways to make beautiful families. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Julie Lamb, for talking with us today about Female Fertility 101. Let me remind you to keep in mind that this information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Also, the views expressed in this show are those of the guests who do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week.